Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I am delighted to talk to Bilal Mohammed. You are most welcome, sir. <clears throat> Salaam alaikum. Welcome assalam, sir. For those who don't know, Bilal Mohammed is a senior fellow and research advisor at the Berkeley Institute for Islamic Studies. He is an educator and researcher based in Toronto, in Canada. His main areas of interest include Middle Eastern history, Islamic studies, New Testament studies, Jewish mysticism, Shakism, international politics, gender studies, Jungian psychology and the civil rights movement. He's also the author of this book, The Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ in Islam, which I've, by coincidence, you have, of course, you have. What a coincidence. Uh, I have the same book. Which um, uh, I've read parts of. It's definitely uh, worth reading. And today, Bilal has kindly agreed to discuss the Muslim Jesus. Who is Jesus in Islam and how do Muslims see Jesus? So over to you, sir. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. First, I want to say thank you for having me on. Uh, thank you to Dr. Carl Sharif and Tubgi for uh, connecting us. Yes. Uh, we've spoken a few times on other platforms, and I am such a huge fan of your show. And I want everybody to make dua for you. I want everybody to uh, have the greatest thanks and gratitude for your work, because what you've put together on Blogging Theology is some great service to not just Muslims, but to all people of faith or all people considering faith uh, in this time. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, may Allah reward you. Alhamdulillah. Thank you for your very generous words indeed. Thank you. So I wanted to talk about the Muslim Jesus in this presentation. I'm going to be uh, sharing a PowerPoint that I've put together. Mm. And of course, uh, this is based on my research, uh, The Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ in Islam. And so the first question is, who is the Islamic Jesus? Who is Jesus in Islam? And I can't talk about this subject without, of course, looking at other books, mentioning other books that have been written on this subject. Of course, the first reference, the first book, the first source that any of us should look at on this subject is the Holy Quran, which are the words of God directly to his prophet Muhammad sallallahu But there are other works um, that have collected some of the sayings of Isa salam, Jesus, son of Mary, peace be unto him. Uh, Tarif Khalidi's book, The Muslim Jesus, is a must-have. Uh, it's a goldmine of references and sayings and stories of Isa in Islamic literature. Uh, a lot of that is in my book, and I actually find some new sources 
um, that I've added to my book. But of course, there's Mustafa Akyol's book, The Islamic Jesus, How the King of the Jews Became a Prophet of the Muslims. And he recently had his interview, of course, with Jordan Peterson. That's actually how I was introduced to him and his book. Um, of course, there's others like Mohammed Lagenhausen's Jesus Through Shiite Traditions. And there's so many other mm. books on mm. this subject. Yeah. But the, the broader question really is, who was Jesus? And we've all heard of the Muslim Jesus, the Jewish Jesus, the socialist revolutionary Jesus, the Jesus uh, of Donald Trump and Republicans in the United States, the Jesus of the Ethiopian church, the black Jesus, the historical Jesus, according to uh, history and anthropology. So who is Jesus? You know, you, you see over here, there's the divine Jesus in this painting over here, which is famously in, in Istanbul, in the Hagia Sophia, yep. the divine Jesus and the human Jesus. So really, who is he in the broad sense? And so the, the sources that I've covered in my research include Jesus, السلام, peace be unto him, in the Quran and tafsir literature. So the exegesis of, uh, of the verses of the Quran, according to various opinions. Jesus in the New Testament and New Testament commentaries. That includes confessional Christian commentaries as well as academic ones. Um, Jesus in Sunni and Shi'i hadith literature. And these are particularly sayings and stories about Jesus. Um, then there's Jesus, of course, in Christian Apocrypha, including the non-canonical works, the Nag Hammadi texts, uh, the other gospels that were not included in the New Testament, the infancy gospel, and the stories that are found therein, um, as well as academic studies on the historical Jesus and the early church. So my book has over 400 references from, from really all of the above. Um, there's two parts to my book. The first part is a collection of sayings of Jesus Christ in the Islamic tradition. And this is really the main thrust of this work, is that so many Muslims just don't know that we have all these ahadith sayings uh, from the Prophet وسلم, attributed to Jesus, sayings from the tabi'in, like the second and third generation Muslims, what they were saying about Jesus, um, as well as uh, apocrypha and folklore and offshoot say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. And my, my hypothesis here is that the Muslim world was not just reading the New Testament, but that they've probably also, after the Muslim conquests and the expansion of the Muslim civilization, probably inherited so much of the folklore, uh, of, of the sayings of Jesus uh, <clears throat> as attributed to him by the Manichaeans, by the Alchasites, by Jewish Christians like the Ebionites and Nazarenes and others. Mm. So you find all these stories, some of which can be found in the New Testament, similar versions of them, but some of which are completely new and unique to the Islamic tradition. Um, of course, what I do is not just list the sayings in Arabic and English with the references, but I also uh, provide a commentary. And it's mainly a commentary on what are the cross-references with the Bible or with other literature. Um, 
what uh, can we find that's similar in the Quran or in the Hadith literature uh, for the Islamic tradition? Um, and I just want to mention that, like, this is not meant to be uh, like a Sahih Hujja book. Like, this is not something that I meticulously graded. So it's not so much a, hist uh, a historical Jesus. That's not the, the point of this book. Um, I'm not trying to paint or at least exclusively trying to paint the, the picture of the historical Jesus according to earliest sources, but rather I'm trying to collect all these traditions and then researchers can do what they wish uh, in terms of the gradings and, and the historicity of individual traditions. Um, yeah, and the second part of the book uh, is actually an anthology of writings on Jesus, salam. So Muslim perspectives, Christian perspectives, Jewish perspectives, convert perspectives, on the Islamic Jesus. So we have contributions by uh, soon-to-be Dr. David Coolidge, uh, who's in New York, and we have Avelina Bellistri, who uh, is a up-and-coming Catholic writer and owner of a magazine, uh, uh, Fairy Dust. And we have Haj Hisham Mahmoud at Lanterna. And of course, we have uh, Trisha Pethik, and we have um, Julia Qasim, and they've all provided their own unique perspective on Jesus and politics and Jesus in the Jewish tradition. And we're going to talk about some of this. Uh, so, are, are the figures we're seeing now on the screen, are these the people you've just listed? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. yeah. It would be random. It would be weird to have random people, right? No, I, I guess it was them. But uh, yeah, that's, that's cool. Yeah, alhamdulillah. Yeah, no. So their contributions were amazing. And I appreciate that. Yeah, so this is what we were talking about just before the presentation, that hmm. um, the teachings of Jesus and the teachings about Jesus. We often find disagreement between Muslims, between Christians, on the teachings about Jesus, and we kind of get stuck. You know, we talk about Christology and the divinity of Jesus, and but then we kind of forget about what did he actually teach? What were the teachings of Jesus? Not just the atonement and the divinity, or lack thereof, but what, what were his actual words? What was the Sermon of the Mount about? Uh, what were some of his other prominent sayings and less prominent sayings talking about? So first, I mean, the Quranic Jesus seems to be mostly setting the record straight, um, meaning like the Quran speaks about how Jesus is not God, he's not the son of God, uh, mm -hmm. that there is no Trinity, um, that the miracles of Jesus were by God's permission, there's the verse on crucifixion. So it's mainly this kind of clarification, setting the record straight. Uh, but the Hadithic Jesus, the sayings of Jesus in the Hadith literature, you get something else. You get this wandering wayfarer who embraces voluntary poverty, who seeks the rectification of the soul, who establishes higher principles, who criticizes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, but outward hypocrisy in general, and materialism, and he instead supports and reifies intention, sincerity, spirituality, and reliance on God. So basically what we see is him embodying, Jesus embodying all of the Sufi and Arfani ideals, yeah. as we can see in the yeah. literature of Kara Mustafa, for example, is written on this subject. Yeah. Sounds, sounds a very, very Sufi-esque kind of portrait of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, what's interesting is that these narrations came up during the trend upon the Tabarian generation, mm. uh, or, uh, to, where 
there was this trend where people were embracing a more simple and worshipful life where it's it wasn't just enough to be muslim but people were trying to find ways of being a believer a mu'min and being a friend of god being a wali of allah so the main themes are very much the asceticism and the mysticism of isa right okay so again, main themes uh, that are covered in his narrations in part one of the book, Zuhud versus materialism. Zuhud here, of course, means asceticism. Uh, and that doesn't mean necessarily just living a monastical life, but it's not having attachment to the material world. Uh, you know, there, Zuhud is not owning nothing. It's that nothing owns you. Hmm. Right. And there's a distinction there. Yeah. yeah. Um. Ethics versus legalism, which we'll talk about. So the idea of morals and not just following the letter of the law. Mm, mm. Scholars for dollars. <laughs> They're the corrupt scholars. Uh, Christology versus divinity. A lot of hadiths try to set the record straight on Jesus not being God and being a, a servant and one relying on God. Of course, eschatology. It's not the focus of my book, but there are some eschatological narrations that I've included with some commentary. Um Good character, spirituality, and of course, the miracles, the dazzling spectacles uh, that we read about attributed to Isa alayhi salam. So I've included a few hadiths just so that everybody gets a taste of some of the um, some of the sayings that are included in this book that are, are you know, that I comment on. <clears throat> so... One of the narrations, which is actually found in Hilyat al-Awliya by Abu Nu'im, um, and a similar narration found in Nashr Balagha, it says, the, this is attributed to Jesus, that he's saying, my condiment is hunger, my emblem is fear, my 50, oh, that's the page number, sorry, my apparel is wool, my warmth in winter is the sunrise, my lamp is the moon, my feet are my transportation, my food and my fruit are what grows from the earth. I sleep with nothing and I awake with nothing. And there is none upon the earth that is richer than me. So it's this idea that he owns nothing, but really nothing owns him. He's not attached to anything. Um, we find even in the gospel, this idea of selling your belongings and giving it to the poor. Uh, we find this idea that uh, one should not be attached to the material world, to the fleeting, to the mundane. That one should instead attach <clears> themselves <throat> to the timeless and become timeless themselves. I, I, I like that quote you got at the top there from Luke uh, eighteen. The the, the first is it, copied from Mark's gospel, of course, Mark chapter ten, which begins as, as it does in Luke with a man coming to Jesus and saying, "Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" And Jesus says. Why do you Why call, do you me, call good? me good? There's no one good but God alone. So <clears throat> it's a remarkable disavowal of divinity or divine status or a, a kind of thoughtless uh, flattery that Jesus is good. No, no, only goodness really belongs to good God. So we see this kind of Jewish humility before uh, uh, expressed by Jesus. And then he goes on uh, mm -hmm. to talk about the man uh, giving away all his wealth and lacking one thing, as, as, you, as you quote there. But it's that remarkable denial of divinity even in the gospels in, in luke and in mark interesting in matthew's version he changes mark's and luke's words uh to avoid the denial that he is god uh and ah, 
and this has been noted by biblical so it's completely off the subject but um the three versions of this story two are the same the earliest and luke matthew changes the story so that uh luke doesn't embarrassingly sorry matthew's jesus doesn't embarrassingly deny that he's divine so you can see all beginnings of the elevated christology uh and divinity even in the new testament itself that's pretty noteworthy because oftentimes the excuse here is that well he's just asking a rhetorical question he's testing his subject why do you call me good it's because i'm god you know it's, this is kind of the response i've gotten from christians but if if uh that line was omitted from matthew that means that matthew didn't omitted something that was yeah he, he doesn't omit it he alters it and this is something that professor john barton who is a professor of the bible at oxford said on, on blogging theology some months ago and it's been it's a commonplace in scholars that matthew changes the words that he inherits from mark uh where jesus asked uh you know good teacher what must i do uh in matthew's version uh jesus says well, what why do you ask me about what is good rather than why do you call me good um so the the uh, a very common view amongst new testament scholars is that the because of the embarrassment of jesus denying his divinity matthew changes the words that he finds in mark uh, and and puts a different form of words and this is uh, and john barton said on blogging theology that this was um a, a deliberate uh deliberate change by matthew and it was it was a, a, like a lie it was a bad thing to do because you're moving away from jesus into into a different realm but anyway it's a different subject well this is exactly why i think people should realize what kind of a treasure they have in you mr paul williams because you've been involved in this stuff ever since i first heard of you uh, maybe 2008 was maybe the first time I heard your name uh, back in the early YouTube days. Uh, and I, you initially had a blog, which you would write articles on. So I think, I mean, this is really, this area really is your element. And this is the area that I think your contributions are are most valued. Um, anyway, I don't want to in any way get in the way of your, your excellent presentation. So thank you. Praise be to Allah. Um, of course, higher ethics is a big part of this book. Um, and this is one of my favorite narrations from Al-Kafi, volume 5, page 542. Um, and this is a story not found in the New Testament, but the certainly the ideas, the, the spirit of the story is, is, is something that you, you find in the New Testament. But Jesus is with his apostles, the Hawariyin, and, and, and the apostles say, oh, teacher of goodness, guide us. Of course, teacher of goodness, we can talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the righteous teacher, but mm. nonetheless... Yeah, because the actual Arabic is which you can translate as righteous teacher. Um, but he says, uh, surely Moses, the one who God spoke to, peace be unto him, commanded you to not swear to God whilst lying, whereas I command you to not swear to God whilst lying, nor whilst telling the truth. Hmm. And, you know, we see this in the Sermon of the Mount. Hmm. It says, oh, spirit of God, tell us more. Jesus said, Moses, the prophet of God, commanded you to not fornicate, or as I command you to not have thoughts of fornication in your mind, in addition to not fornicating. For one who has thoughts of fornication in his mind is like one who kindles a fire in a decorated house. The smoke ruins the decorations, even if the house does not burn. Hmm. So we find even in the New Testament, very similar, you know, uh, admonitions or exhortations, uh, where Jesus السلام, is saying, look, in the time of Moses, you guys were slaves. You guys were being brought out of the land of Egypt. You guys were being turned into citizens after living in an idolatrous country. So the laws, you know, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, were quite simple and quite legalistic. 
But now we're in a very different position. We're not, you know, in exile. We're not in the land of polytheists. We're in the promised land. We have synagogues. The temple is standing, right? The scholars are there. The scribes are there. The books are there. And so are we just going to stay at an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, or are we going to evolve? Are we going to develop? Are we going to talk about forgiveness? Are we going to speak about not just not saying God's name mm-hmm. uh, in like uh, when lying, but just in general, why abuse God's name? Why have this obsession that you have to convince everybody that, that you're telling the truth? Why have this obsession with not just committing zina, but thinking about zina? And that idea of polluting the mind, of course, you have much more of this in the New Testament, the idea of, um, you know, he says, uh, anyone who steals, cut off his hand, you know, cut off your own hand if you steal. Like, he's teaching a morality uh, that goes beyond just the letter of the law. You know, he says, uh, don't pray in public. For those who pray in public have received their reward. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, but rather go to, and close the door behind you so that you're <clears throat> purifying your sincerity before <clears throat> God. Well, but, but um, on, on that, if I, sorry, I can't resist making a comment on that. Please, please, please. Thank you. Uh, this is a point of criticism often directed against Muslims by Christians, because they will say, look at you Muslims. You, you Look, Jesus says you, you should pray in your private room, your private chamber, and don't pray publicly like that. And you Muslims, you... You pray five times a day, sometimes in a synagogue. And I've always found that a very peculiar criticism because what do Christians do every Sunday? They go to church and they pray in congregations, sometimes in huge cathedrals. So if they were to be consistent in following this teaching of Jesus, they wouldn't ever go to church, which, of course, is ridiculous. Uh, so it's a, it's a very selective criticism of Muslims who are seen praying in public, but actually Christians do it as well. Of course, Jesus, the language Jesus used is many scholars have shown, is kind of Aramaic hyperbole. It's hyperbolic teaching. Often prophets speak like that, and the prophet Muhammad, upon whom be peace, can use hyperbolic language as well. And it's a mistake to take it in a wooden, literal way. So when Jesus says, if your eye causes you to offend, cut it out, he doesn't really mean that literally. It's a way of saying, deal ruthlessly with your your sin. It's not meant to be taken in that literal way, and it's a mistake to do that, I think. You're absolutely right, and I think that uh, I'm very happy that you brought that up because what we see a lot of the time, and I think Timothy Winter, you know, Abdul Hakim Murad, he brought this up in his book Traveling Home, and oftentimes Europe sees the Muslim world uh, the way it sees the Old Testament, rigid, legalistic, backward, while Europe, progressive, forgiving, merciful, right? Progressive. So, um, interestingly, what we see is that Moses, you know, and, and the beginning of the Bible brings th- this law, right? These mitzvot, these, these, these commandments. Mm. Jesus, he's bringing the spirit of the law. So letter and spirit. Muhammad brings both. Yeah. So, and that's how he completes the message. Because it's Moses in the sense that there is the sharia. There are ethics and laws with regards to prayer, with regards to purification, <clears throat> with regards to, you know, um, sexual conduct, with regards to food. But at the same time, the akhlaq of the prophet, the du'as, the devotion of the prophet, that uh, he was not just a man who was uh, restrictive, but rather that he was someone that would eat on Sundays, 
and he would uh, fast on other days. He would sleep on some days or part of the night, and he would stay awake and stand up in the middle of the night. He would marry, and he would be he would be chaste. Um, so it's not totally being abstinent, but rather it's the, the, there. There is an understanding that character, that forgiveness that there is a morality that goes above the letter of the law and that the real Muslim is not just the one who submits to God, right, the word Muslim, but it's one that has trust in God, that's Iman, and then furthermore, one that has Ihsan, one that beautifies his relationship with God, his relationship with others, one that has Taqwa or God consciousness, one that has Yaqeen, which is certainty, that all of these are part of the Muhammadan message. So I think um, when we when we think of Muhammad as being that kind of uh, combination between the, the legal and the moral, I think we get a very clear picture of his role. In, uh, uh, beautifully put, and Christianity has often been accused of having abandoned the law uh, more or less completely and allowed secular, the secular regime, secular order to take its place to give structure and purpose to the social and political domain, which Christianity has, seems to have retreated from, particularly in the recent centuries. But that's a different story. Well, you know, uh, Paul, of course, famously antinomian. Uh, Jesus, of course, I, I don't see strong evidence for that. Uh, I still, I mean, you can find quotes where it's not what goes in your mouth that that uh, defiles you, but what comes out of your mouth. That's still true in its own sense, right? That yes, pork is haram. That's the law, no doubt about it. But also, what comes out of your mouth and not is something that we should be conscious of, so that we're not just, you know, we're ticking the boxes of righteousness, but that we're also thinking about it on a daily basis and a minutely basis. Scholars for Daughters, of course, this is uh, something that is very interesting uh, to many people. But basically, we see that uh, this hadith here, which is in the Al-Khisal by Sheikh Saduq, chapter 93, verse 9, uh, or hadith 91, uh, Isa, Jesus, the son of Mary, peace be unto him, said, wealth is a disease of religion, and the scholar is the doctor of religion. So if you see the doctor drawing the disease to himself, then suspect him and know that he is not an advisor unto others. Wow. And there are all kinds of narrations, and there's a particular chapter on this topic, on the uh, evil scholars, and how Jesus was someone that was quite outspoken. And we see this in the New Testament, and we see this in the Hadith literature, that he was outspoken against the Pharisees, against the, the money changers, uh, against those who were just using religion as a source of fame and material gain and extravagance, uh, while actually forgetting about um, the, the the value of poverty, the value of, of you know, willful, uh, voluntary poverty, the value of humility, uh, and the value of abstinence from this world. Okay. And this is the last hadith I'm going to share. Um, again, many more like it, but this is on the alchemy of marvels. This is, uh, there might be one, actually there's one more after this, so this is not the last one. But this is one that's found in Ibn Abi Dunya's Kitab al-Yaqeen. And this is one of my favorites. Uh, I first learned about this hadith because I remember Sheikh Hamza Yusuf had put out that little PDF, Walk on Water, and it had some narrations from uh, attributed to Jesus. But it says that it was said to Jesus, how is it that you walk on the water? And he said, with faith and certainty. So they said, surely we believe just as you believe. And we have certainty just as you have certainty. So he said, if that's the case, then walk. 
So they walked with him into a wave and they sank under the water. And Jesus said to them, what happened to you? So they said, we feared the wave. He said, do you not fear the Lord of the wave? The one that owns it, sustains it, created it. So he took them out of the water. Then he struck both his hands into the earth and grasped two fistfuls. He opened his hands and there was gold in one and dust and gravel in the other. Then he said, which of these two is more beloved to your hearts? They said, this gold. So he said to me, they are the same. Mm -hmm. So basically this ability to not, you know, uh, irrationally value gold. I mean, we use gold as a currency and certainly it has some uh, physical function, but Jesus was did not concern himself with the difference. Jesus's heart and his mind was so set on God that, you know, we, we look at the even the legal tender that we have today, the paper. Paper itself is worthless. Yeah. It's got some dead kafir on it. It's got uh, some pictures and some numbers on it. But really, I mean, it's not, this is not the why we're here. We're, we're allowed to make money. We're allowed to spend it in the way that pleases Allah, in the way that pleases us, in the halal. But this is not why we're here. Mm. It's not why we were created. It's not why we exist. And so it's almost saying that the source of uh, really uh, Jesus' effect on the world is his insight. The way he sees the world, his worldview, is partly what gives him this 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 miraculous ability by God's permission. And of course, we all know Jesus as the miracle worker, as the healer, the one that healed the blind, the leper, made the deaf hear and the lame walk. But what if I told you that there's one illness that's greater than all these illnesses that you yourself can heal? I don't mean you as in Mr. Paul Williams, but the audience, you fellow audience member, fellow viewer, you have the ability to heal the greatest illness. And this is in the hadith of Sheikh al-Mufid in Al-Ikhtisas, page 221. Jesus, the son of Mary, peace be unto him, said, I have treated the ill and cured them by God's permission. I've healed the born blind and the lepers by God's permission. I've treated the dead and resurrected them by God's permission. Yet when I treated the fool, I could not rectify him. So it was said, oh, Ruh Allah, what is a fool? So he said, he who is enamored by his opinion and his own self. He thinks that his blessings are his rather than a test against him. He demands all rights for himself without giving himself any responsibilities. That is the fool in whom there is no hope for treatment. Amazing, amazing story. Yeah. So, I mean, look, I mean, healing the blind, all of that, I mean, but he, healing your own ignorance. Remember that Muhammad وسلم, he fought for his whole life against jahiliyyah. Mm. He fought his entire life against foolishness, foolhardiness, this ignorance. And he tried to bring people back into ma'rifah, into the cognizance and recognition of God and our responsibilities and duties towards him. So that's something that, you know, you need to wake yourself up on. You need to use your aql, use your intellect to unlock the seals and begin to see. Because although Jesus is the one that healed the blind and the deaf and the dumb in that very direct way, Muhammad wasallam, he made the people who were blind to the hereafter see it. He made the people who were deaf to the message hear it. He made those who are illiterate read. He made those who 
uh, were lame and incapacitated to walk and not just walk, but to conquer so much of the world and to walk from Morocco to China with nothing but la ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. So the, 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 the foolishness uh, is something that, you know, is curable and it's entirely curable disease. You know, Islam doesn't have a negative view of human nature per se, uh, that we're naturally evil. No, humans are basically good. And uh, we're not suffering from natural evil. We're suffering from ignorance. And ignorance is an entirely curable spiritual illness. Hmm. <clears throat> so what are some of the unique contributions to this research? Um, basically, I take some positions uh, and I provide you know, my arguments and my evidence, and people are feel, you know, feel free to respond to them. But one of my contributions is this idea that Jesus is neither a Pharisee nor a zealot. Because um, on, on one hand, you know, we've had him compared to someone like Rabbi Hillel, right? That he's just another one of these figures uh, while the temple was still standing. Um, Rabbi Hillel being known to be a little bit more um, forgiving and permissive. Um, but he's also not Bar Kokhba, right? And I know that like Robert Eisenman in his book, James, the Brother of Jesus, he really wants to present Jesus as this revolutionary that the movements that were closest to his teachings were the anti-Roman movements. Um, uh, also, is it Reza, um, Reza Aslan, I think it is, who is called, called precisely that, Zealot, obviously taking that same uh, view, although it was very derived from other works rather than his own um, research. But uh, yeah. So I argue that, you know, he criticizes Jewish authority, but not just for political reasons that he was not Barabbas, right? Because you have this episode in the Gospels where, you know, whether it happened or not, God knows best, but mm. Pontius Pilate offers, says, you want Jesus or, you know, the son of Mary, or do you want, doesn't call him that, but, or Jesus Barabbas, right? And in the, new, in the oldest manuscripts, it actually says Jesus Barabbas. So it's almost this two sides that here you have this spiritual uh, savior, but on this other side, you have this rebel. Yeah. And uh, in a sense, uh, Barabbas was, you know, because he was this insurrectionist, he was kind of the Jewish Messiah. He was the one that people had hoped for on mm. a political level yeah. to fight against and free the Jews from Roman occupation. But basically, I argue that Isa, Jesus, that he was following the Islamic principle uh, that God does not change the condition of the people until they change what is in themselves. You know, that the zealots on one hand were bending scripture for political reasons. And the Pharisees, on the other hand, were bending scripture for their own hypocrisy. But that Jesus was talking sincerity. He was trying to bring people back, not just to the Torah message, but to a higher message, uh, a message of spiritual impu uh, purity, as well as following the law. Uh, furthermore, um, I think there, I, I, we, we speak, especially in the essay by Hajj uh, Hisham Mahmoud from Lanterna, he speaks about the relevance uh, of Jesus today in terms of minimalism. Of course, there's a new trend where people want to live in a minimalistic way uh, in a consumer age. Of course, egoism in the selfie age. Everybody, you know, on TikTok and Instagram, uh, what can Jesus teach us about the ego and the dangers of it? Uh, sincerity, sincere scholarship in the age of government-funded preachers, mm -hmm. right? And this is a big problem in the Muslim world. Mm -hmm. 
the government-funded preachers and how to be how to remain sincere and not just become a puppet or a scholar for dollars. Hmm. <clears throat> and there's an emphasis that it's not enough to look like Jesus. You know, we, we hear this all the time that Muslims say, well, look, you know, our women look like Mary because they wear a similar veil or our men look like Jesus because they wear a beard. Um, but, you know, there is no hijab in a man that doesn't lower his gaze. There's no hijab in a woman who meets up with men wearing perfume, right? It's not enough to just fast the month of Ramadan if we're gluttonous the entire night and gluttonous for all year long, you know, that we have to hold our tongue. We have to practice silence. That We have to, uh, you know, that there's no point of an information age even if we're not practicing wisdom. Mm. It's just information, information. You know, wisdom is applying the right knowledge at the right time with the right people. So this type of relevance is, is uh, something, you know, the what would Jesus do? You know, that's really a big theme in the book. What Messiah means. I mean, this is a big point and perhaps a controversial one. Um, but I explore what is it, what does it actually mean, uh, in this book? And of course, Messiah and the Bible is mostly in the Old Testament used in Leviticus, right? To refer to the ordained priests. Um, it's not actually used, uh, it's not really used to refer to the Davidic king, the eschatological Davidic king, that specific word. Jesus is called Messiah in the Quran. He's the only prophet called a Messiah in the Quran. The Quran also says that he's a descendant of Aaron, right? Because Mary is called the sister of Aaron. And in the Hadiths, the prophet clarifies that she was a descendant of Aaron. That's why she was called sister of Aaron. Of course, Zechariah in the same family, he's a high priest in the temple. Mary, of course, was in the temple in her childhood. So, and, and this is a point of distinction between Muslims and Christians because the Gospels don't say, you know, the Gospels, they don't say that Jesus is this Cohen, right? They, in Matthew and Luke, there's a lineage given to Jesus. Mm. Um, but in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, and Luke chapter 1, verse 36, we learn that Mary is the cousin of Elizabeth, and we learn that she's a descendant of Aaron. And you can, you can surmise that from these texts, that she is from this, this family. And of course, Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus, so his lineage doesn't even make mm. a difference. It's not that important. Um, and of course, Mary was a virgin when, when Jesus was conceived. So this idea of Jesus being a Cohen is important if we consider that he might be the priestly Messiah. Mm. The idea that, of course, in Judaism, there's the idea of dual leadership. That's like, uh, you know, in the case of Saul, King Saul, Talut in the Quran, you have Saul, but you have Samuel. Samuel is the prophet, Saul yeah. is the king, or Talut is the king. And of course, as a unnamed prophet in Surah Al-Baqarah when discussing the same subject, uh, that you have Moses, you know, and you have Aaron, that in the end times, you have the Davidic and you have the priestly or, or Josephine Messiah. So this is something I discussed in the book, too, that uh, that that this dual leadership might make better, best sense when looking at the Islamic concept of a Mahdi, that the Mahdi he is the Khalifa, he's the Caliph of the end times. He's the Caliph that would even offer Jesus to lead prayer, but Jesus will say, no, you have more right to it, and Allah has made leaders for this Ummah. That the Mahdi is actually the one that fills the earth with justice and peace, just as it's fraught with 
injustice and oppression. So I pretty much kind of make that detailed case for uh, Jesus being this spiritual priestly Messiah uh, who comes to, um, to, to confirm the message and to correct uh, the message of those who claim that follow or the, the practice of those who follow him uh, and claim to follow him uh, and that he would rule side by side with the Mehdi uh, who would be the, the ruler. Mm. And of course, even in the literature, there's various interpretations to what Messiah means. Ibn Kathir says uh, that we know, first of all, Messiah is like anointed. That's the more literal meaning. And in some hadiths, Jesus actually has wet hair. Uh, and so that might be a literary device representing that he's been anointed. You know, he's got wet hair. Ibn Kathir says uh, he's called Messiah. The idea that Jesus traveled from place to place, that he was this wayfarer. So it's as though he's like wiping, you know, because he's traveling from this place to that place and he's wiping the earth. Hmm. Um, Tabari wrote that he's called Messiah because he's been purified from sin, that sin's been kind of erased or wiped away uh, for him. But yeah, I mean, this idea of Jesus being this this uh, Aaronic or Josephine Messiah, I think, is is one of the unique ideas that it's going to get some disagreement, I'm sure. But that's that's one of my contributions here. Okay. Now, just on a very much more trivial point, I remember when I was a, <clears throat> a Christian, I used to wear a "What would Jesus do?" Uh, bracelet thing that used to be all the rage. Uh, and I, I remember I got some from the states and. And of course, the irony is then I was a Christian. And what would Jesus do? Well, the first thing he'd do, he, he wouldn't eat pork. And yet all the Christians, of course, who used to wear this, usually evangelical Christians, were all busy eating their 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 pork. So there was no sense of the actual real Jesus, a first century Palestinian Jew who was Torah observant. That that could be completely removed from the context. Uh, and he'd become a Gentile, um, westernized, usually white uh, figure uh he, and and purely and his spirituality is purely interior that there was no uh there's no sharia there was no halakha um so in other words it's a completely unhistorical unreal jesus unfortunately that i believed in um and as you say you're bringing back here the realities of messiah what it actually meant uh, uh and it's a very very different being indeed i think well so i mean of course there was a a jesus that was presented to be accepted by Hellenic people. Yeah. And Hellenic people were not going to uh, start wearing side locks and avoiding uh, uh, food sacrificed mm -hmm. by idols and uh, avoiding uh, pork. This was not really a palatable uh, means of spreading Christianity to, to you know, pagans in Europe. Um, but at the same time, I also argue that he's not a rabbinical Jew either. And actually, there's a very interesting essay, which I'll get into it in a moment, on Jewish perspectives on Jesus. Mm. I have two authors here in the book uh, that are converts to Islam, uh, who remain anonymous for their own, you know, for their own reasons. Um, but they basically, one of them wrote about how, well, Jesus is a prophet. Um, there's really no reason to deny it. If it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, and it jumps and it swims like a duck, it's a duck, right? <laughs> looks like a prophet, sounds like a prophet, then by golly, it's a prophet. Um, but a second perspective, which is more maybe very pertinent, is this idea that what can Jesus offer Jews today? Um, that many of the Jewish communities, there's this aversion, this allergy towards Jesus, even though 
at the cedar table, you might have a yogi, you might have someone involved in Sufism, you might have an atheist, right? Um, but someone that believes in, in Jesus, that's enough to excommunicate, you know, the Jews for Jesus. So th the idea that there needs to be, because Judaism has become so halachic, so focused on the law, um, there needs to be some kind of return to what the Jews were doing prior to the pogroms and the ghettos, what they were doing when the temple was still standing. And so they have to look at the Sanhedrin-approved <laughs> sages, but also the non-Sanhedrin-approved sages, and that Jesus is an important voice um, in that, that Jesus should take a second look. <laughs> and of course, this is a great resource to take a second look because the New Testament is so associated with uh, Jewish persecution. Um, but then this hadith literature, it doesn't have that same association. Yeah, I think so, one of the one of the great Jewish writers, uh, Ernie Sally, recently passed away, written a great deal about this, uh, a guy called Giza Vermesh. Uh, he was a, a British um, uh, professor at Oxford. He was actually a professor of Jewish studies. He's one of the world's leading Jewish scholars who was a Jew. Um, and he spoke very warmly, actually, very interestingly, of Jesus, the historical Jesus, not not the Christian Jesus, not the the dying and rising Savior God, uh, and so on, but the uh, the, the wandering aesthetic uh, Jesus, the Jew. The name that was the title of his seminal work in the seventies, which revolutionised New Testament studies in the West, of course. Uh, but as someone who's an eschatological prophet, uh, Torah observant, who who prayed to his Father in heaven, and, and presented a very attractive. Uh, Jesus that would be accessible and understood by Jews. And that was quite deliberate, actually, uh, and uh, on his part. So he's done a lot to rehabilitate the historical Jesus for Jews, uh, uh, but but also for the layman as well. Um, interesting, Giza Vermish was uh, a Jew himself, as I say, but he was a Catholic priest in Hungary. Originally, just before the Nazis came to power, he escaped, came to England, ended up at Oxford and, and being a, a phenomenally successful New Testament scholar. That's that's wonderful. That's, that's absolutely wonderful. And I mean, just an example of uh, coming together on common ground. And mm. yeah, I mean, the, the Talmud really just provides one one snapshot, right? And a very negative snapshot of Jesus and his mother. Mm. And, you know, we utterly condemn uh, the filthy things said about Jesus and his mother, um, that, <clears throat> that, he's, that he's boiling in excrement and that his mother was was a loose woman. You know, the Quran comes and rebukes that. Um, and that's an example for anyone, really, that comes with a fake accusation towards a woman, uh, that the, their testimony is simply not accepted ever for any reason if such a false accusation is made. Um, but really, I mean, in this Hadith literature, Jesus offers humanity and spirituality and love for God. Again, going back to teachings of Jesus rather than teachings about Jesus, I think, um, all of us, you know, even even secular people have have a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, this idea that Jesus is merely a prophet—you you've probably heard this from a lot of Christian polemics. Like, yeah, oh, it's merely a prophet. That it's that you see that they don't get it. That well, I'll let you explain. But they think for them, a, a, a prophet is a lowly status. <laughs> so, uh, of course, for Muslims, a, a very different understanding and a very exalted understanding because uh, of what a prophet is, of course. And that's exactly right. I think with prophetology, first of all, let's let's look at the claim. Let's say he's merely a prophet. A prophet to us is not someone that sleeps with his daughters and mm. uh, drinks alcohol naked, 
Um, that's uh, or, or you know sleeps with Bathsheba, sends her husband to war. That's not what a prophet is to us. A prophet is an infallible or a sinless or immaculate vessel uh, representing God's message, not just in words, but also in their actions and their deeds. Because if they're uh, imperfect and very imperfect in some cases, then we would have sufficient excuse to not follow them uh, or to not be perfect ourselves. Because, like, hey, if you know David couldn't figure it out, how am I going to figure it out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he's more than that. He's not just a prophet, but he's a messenger. Not just a messenger, but the ul azim, the highest, you know, five messengers. And we don't say that he's a servant of God to denigrate him. This is the highest title that anybody can get. Is that is to be an Abdullah to really, you know, uh, you know, to really be that is 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 the best you can be in Islam. So. There's no effort to denigrate him whatsoever. Absolutely, absolutely right. It's, it's something that I think, for Christian point of view, the Christians find it very hard to get their mind around. There's there is a kind of religious psychology problem here. Uh, um, in, in, there's lack of mutual understanding, or certainly from the Christian side, I think. Yeah, and uh, in terms of Jesus in America, uh, Haj Hisham Mahmoud wrote a beautiful essay. On the, it's called the Call of the Christ. I think it's even freely available online. Um, but he looks at how Jesus is this man raised by a single mother in poverty, right? Ironically upheld by capitalists, hmm. right? Protestant work ethic, you know, Weber's thesis. That's, uh, you know, he's upheld by these anti-refugee racists in some cases, um, Megan Kelly, you know, said that it's a historical fact that Jesus and Santa Claus are white. Uh, I let the audience think about what the hell she meant by that. It is actually uh, on YouTube. You actually see that on YouTube. Uh, there's a clip of her saying this, of course, and to much derision from the rest of YouTube, who made lots of uh, responses to her unfortunate comment. Yeah. And, you know, you had Michael Moore. He had his film Sicko, and he has this scene I, where, you know, he, first he wants to emphasize that Jesus provided free health care, right? And that he fed everybody. Um, so there's this funny scene in the movie where it's like, oh, Jesus, I am blind. And it's like, you have pre-existing conditions in your health insurance. Uh, yeah. So it's like, that's <laughs> not Christ. You know, Christ is someone that <clears throat> healing, forgiving <clears throat> with the permission of Allah uh, and, and not this like, you know, Republican that is often uh, depicted. Yes. Um, the early church. I mean, this is probably my favorite chapter in the book is mm. uh, on the early church. And it's all specifically... In it's all, all in the, if you want to read more about what we're discussing or, or what uh, Bilal's been discussing, do delve into this book. It has the, the details. Thank you so much. And, uh, of course, we know that there were there was a Jerusalem church. Yes. There were bishops. Eusebius <laughs> mentions the bishops of the circumcision at the Jerusalem church. Mm. That went on all the way till the Bar Kokhba revolt, 132 to 134. Right. Uh, and not just do you get these bishops, but some of these are from Jesus' family. Mm. Right? The Ahlul Bayt of Jesus, alayhi salam. Mm. The Al Imran, that Allah names a whole chapter of the Quran after. You know, we know about Zachariah, we know about Imran, we know about Yahya, we know about Maryam and Isa. But do we know about James the Just? Do we know about Jude? Do we know about Simeon Bar Cleophas or Justice of Jerusalem mm. or Judah Kyriakos? You know, these were family members of Jesus. And this is one of the most 
unknown facts of yeah. history that yeah. Jesus's family played this played this profound historical role in the early church. Yeah. James the brother of Jesus writing about faith without works is dead. Mm. Jude the brother of Jesus writing about hypocrites who uh have perverted the grace of God to commit all kinds of uh heinous sins, right? And to live a lavish, frivol uh, frivolous and decadent lifestyle. Mm. Um, that these were all martyrs, you know, these family members of Jesus, this is a line of martyrs. People, you know, one killed with an axe in Lebanon and the other one, uh, you know, thrown and, and stoned to death. I mean, this should be very kind of familiar, familial, not familiar, familiar yes. uh, to Muslims um, that, that God has yeah. households um, that he chooses and selects and gives prophecy and gives uh, leadership to and that the people reject them and uh you know bad things happen but this is uh the people that you mentioned eisenman already the the uh the american uh historian and been many others <clears throat> who have uh rediscovered the, the the james the brother of jesus who was the head of the jerusalem church after jesus and there has been in a very real <clears throat> non-paranoid sense here, a cover-up by the the mainstream church over the centuries um to whitewash the jewish particularly the jewish origins of not just jesus himself but his family and as you say this dynasty this Achilbeit, the household of the prophet which endured uh and the, the evidence is there if you look for it and people have now recovered this and and researched it in some considerable detail and uh, obviously eclipsed by a different narrative based on Paul, the Apostle Paul, and the Gentile church in what became the Roman Catholic, the Catholic church in the second century onwards, which is a different trajectory. We have a trajectory which goes back to Jesus and his family, and another trajectory goes back to Paul and the visions he had and the theology of justification by faith and abandonment of the Torah, etc., and the belief in the dying and rising Savior God called Jesus. It's a different religion. And there were, in a very real sense, as Bart Ehrman uses the expression, Christianities. It wasn't like there was Christianity in the beginning. There were Christian plural. There were different forms of Christianity right from the beginning with the Ebionites and you get the, the Gnostics and the Pauline Christians and the Marcionites and, and the Proto-Catholics and so on. And um, it's actually a very interesting and complicated picture. Um, and Islam fits in there, I think. And this has been noted by a number of scholars, including Hans Kung, the great German scholar. Islam fits into this story right at the beginning, at the root of this, uh, the root of the Jesus movement. You'll find you find it and a kind of a, a, an Islamic-like faith, uh, which later obviously changed. So, and that's not a Muslim view. That's a, a, a scholarly Christian view uh, held by some very senior scholars. You're absolutely right. And I think um, mm. there's a few points I want to mention there, which is that mm. uh, Paulinism, of course, eclipses uh, yeah. the Christianity of Jesus's family, right? You, you'd have to really believe that his family all got it wrong. And yeah. this guy that never met Jesus all got it right um, based on Revelation. Um, but that being said, what's interesting is that you, uh, after the Jerusalem church, after Jerusalem is destroyed, so in the Bar Kokhba revolt by 134, 135, Hadrian just wipes out Jerusalem. Yeah. Right after that, you get Elia Capitolina, which is the kind of new rebuilt city that's just outside of the historical Jerusalem. 
And guess what shows up there? A new church. But it's not a church that Jews are allowed to go to. Jewish Christians are running. The Jews are only allowed to go there on Tisha B'Av, right, to mourn. That's once a year to mourn the um, the destruction of the temple. Um, but this was a new line of bishops that were Gentiles that were no longer of the of the circumcision. So it's almost as though the Pauline Church comes and sits in the seat mm. of the mm. church that Jesus established right in his lifetime. And uh, I mean, the rest is history in terms of who actually inherits the teachings of the family of Jesus, but. I wanted to mention that this Christology that's evolving, you know, you get the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, the Council of Ephesus. And one of my arguments is that these councils continue into the Islamic, the Islamic uh, Aqidah in the discussions of prophetology and imamology, right? Or how perfect are the prophets? Are they capable of mistakes? And so these are things discussed in early Islam or in discussions about the Quran. Are these words of Allah, are they created or are they uncreated? Or in discussions about the role of aql uh, and kalam and mantaq or intellect um, and, and use of uh, philosophical and logical reasoning in religion, that this evolution kind of and this discussion continues while in the Christian world, once you define an orthodoxy at a council, you define the heretics and the heresy, you know, they have to, they can't stay in the Levant necessarily. They are pushed into other areas that pushed eastward, pushed southward. <clears throat> um, but in Islam, we don't have councils, right? That diversity of opinions is there. And I mean, sure, certainly there's sectarianism in Islam, but there is no council that got together every 30 years or every 100 years that decided, okay, this is what the doctrine is going to be. Everybody else gets killed or everybody else gets shoved away. No, you had enclaves, you have different interpretations. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of the discussions on Christology, in a sense, they move into the Islamic world. Mm, yeah, very good. There's one perspective offered that the real bridge between Christians and Muslims uh, is Mary. Mm, mm. And, and this this is a, a, a view offered by Avelina Bellistri, the Catholic uh, writer of one of the chapters in the book. Uh, and she says that, I mean, because to a Christian, as soon as you strip Jesus of divinity and atonement, they kind of wonder, well, what's the point? Mm. What's the point of this Jesus? Now, there is a, there's a big point. But nonetheless, with Mary, you know, she more or less stays in a very exalted position. Uh, so at least between Catholics and Orthodox on one side with Muslims, uh, there's this very real bridge. <clears throat> the Quran names one chapter after a woman and it happens to be Mary. And that there are these stories of Mary that she's, these miracles are attributed to her even before Christ was ever mentioned. Mm. No, I mean, of course, Islam is the only religion in the world that, that requires belief in Jesus as the Messiah born of the Virgin Mary as an article of faith. <clears throat> to deny that is will take you out of the fold of Islam. Why? Because that's what exactly what the Quran teaches in a very clear way, uh, that Mary is a, a very esteemed woman. Indeed, a whole chapter of the Quran is named after him, Miriam. And that she was a mother of Jesus and Jesus was not God and so on. So these are required beliefs in Islam. They're not um, just opinions. Mm -hmm. um, there, there is a natural bridge between the two faiths because they share that commonality. Um, and Mary is a real bridge is a very interesting concept, I must say. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a whole essay on Mary um, talking about how she is this figure, again, a single mother, again, a devotee in the temple, which is a largely kind of male institution at that time. Mm. Uh, and, and she would have been very young. You know, the, in the Quran, her parents ex- uh, expected a boy, but it was a girl. Mm. And nonetheless, that child was dedicated to the temple. So you can only imagine a young Mary, you know, reading and praying and studying uh, that she was a an ascetic that was preparing to give birth to the supreme ascetic, Jesus Christ, the son of Mary. Um, so that kind of work that she did on herself, and of course, to bear the false accusation, is something that women today from all walks of life can relate to and can empathize with. So there's, there is so much there. And I mean, there's, I, I make comparisons between the stories in the Quran, you know, Mary received um, sustenance from heaven and mm-hmm. the various exegetes, they disagree on what exactly that means. Um, but we find in some early Christian apocrypha that, yeah, the angel would uh, give her food and uh, you know, they would find food with her from heaven. And this is all before there is ever a, a conception of Jesus. And of course, she conceives Jesus whilst on a spiritual retreat in the Quran. And there is no manger. There are no three magi. There is no Joseph by her side. She's by herself mm. with nothing but Allah, her Lord, to depend on. And I mean, it goes without saying you had a video. And this is just to clarify to Christian viewers that when we say Allah, we're not referring to a different God. We're referring to the God of Jesus who called him Allaha. Right? Didn't call him God or Dieu or 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 that. He called it he called him Allah. And that's that this is the the name of God in Salaam. You, you spoke Aramaic, of course, Jesus. And the Aramaic Aramaic is a cognate of uh Arabic. Uh and so the 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 word as you pronounced it there, the Aramaic word is very similar to the Arabic word. And it would be. Um so uh, Jesus would have sounded quite Arabic or, or Muslim in his speech about God, had we heard him speak, I think. As as uh, Toby Asinger <laughs> once said, and I, I can't say it, he, he said it in his own inimitable way, <laughs> that you, if you're going to come with moon gods and shmoon gods, they're going to open up the yellow page and says this guy is sick. He needs a doctor. <laughs> so that's, I mean, that's honestly what we have to deal that's with. Good but. impersonation there. I didn't know you could impersonate. That's a, oh, I could impersonate just about everybody, but that's a bit I, scary. Oh dear, I didn't know you did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, you speak in a in a in a very you're very well mannered, so I, I wouldn't do an impersonation of you because there's it's not a there's no particular tick or anything like that. But anyways, um, the Dajjal, the Antichrist. Um, yes. This is. Not again, the focus of the book is on eschatology, but you can't have a book about Jesus without some, uh, you know, some writing about eschatology. So, like, the last chapter, you know, befittingly, is about the Antichrist. And I make an argument that this is not just something later Muslims picked up, because that's one of the accusations, right? That later Muslims, they just inherited the Judeo Christian. Uh, eschatology and that there is no Dajjal in the Quran, this and that. But really, I think people sometimes ignore in these discussions the story of Ibn Sayyad, that there actually was this boy in the time of the Prophet, this Jewish boy who was claiming to be a prophet, who the Sahaba suspected of being the Dajjal, right? Mm -hmm. 
So to it's one thing to say that, well, some of the Israeliyat, some of the Christian and Jewish traditions were snuck into the Hadith literature. But it's another thing to have all these episodes where the Prophet and Umar and others run into this boy and um, they suspect him, like, is he the Antichrist? Is he not the Antichrist? And the Prophet says, well, if he is the Antichrist, you wouldn't be able to kill him. And if he wasn't the Antichrist, then killing him isn't the, the best idea. Hmm. Um, so, and, and this is a guy that continued to live after the Prophet. And he was in Medina and he was in the Fatuhat or the conquests. And I mean, to fabricate his whole existence just for the sake of justifying the Antichrist story, I think is, hmm. you know, the hazard level of skepticism, but I don't buy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you, are you going to? I mean, I'm intrigued that you have the Logos theology there. I remember studying this at uni, um, second century Christian theology. It, uh, why did you include a, a section in that in in your book, particularly? Well, so just in, in the section on uh, Jesus's divinity, there's a chapter on is Jesus God, mm-hmm. and I noticed that, and this is an important point actually. So I'm very happy you mentioned this. Um, recently, uh, Dr. Jordan Peterson, who actually was a friend of mine. Like I, I worked at the University of Toronto. Wow. Yeah. I worked at the University of Toronto in 2011 and he was there at that time. Mm. Uh, this was, you know, way before he was uh, this well-known, you know, uh, mm. selling author. Uh, but, you know, after he, his controversial take on Bill C-16 and gender pronouns, he, uh, I had been to some of his Bible talks and I'd been to some of his other, his, his lecture with, um, with uh, William Lane Craig, who you've had on your show. And I've been to uh, um, one of his debates as well, uh, as well as, yeah, his debate with Slavoj Zizek. I, w- I was there. I wrote an analysis of it. I, missed yeah. I must I must see that because I, I, that's interesting. I didn't know he did that. I must. Yeah, watch. so on the Berkeley Institute for Islamic Studies, I wrote an analysis of uh, this Zizek versus uh, Jordan Peterson, and I gave a Muslim perspective on yeah. capitalism and on Marxism. Um, but that being said, I mean, um, you know, Jordan Peterson, ta- uh, his wife, um, she actually bought the book. Mm. And inshallah, uh, I plan on uh, going on her show, Tammy Peterson's show on YouTube uh, to discuss the book. So I'm very happy to, you know, to be involved. In but the reason why I mentioned this is because Peterson recently did talks with a few Muslims, particularly Mustafa Akiol, who I mentioned at the beginning of this presentation, uh, Mohammed Hijab, our, yeah. our good friend from, you know, London with the okay. shirt, and and, uh, and of course, um, Hamza Yusuf, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. Yeah. Yeah. And the consistent question that's brought up that I think wasn't adequately answered was, because remember, G- Peterson is not a theologian. No. He is someone representing, well, first he's a psychologist, but he's someone that's very interested in Western civilization and the mythological root of Western civilization. And what makes him interested in the Logos is this idea of free speech, of dialogue, of logic, because he says that the postmodernists, they don't believe in dialogue and they want to censor free speech and they want to coerce people to say certain words. And this is something that came up in all three interviews, but I don't think with respect to the guests uh, that they had any, like, like a clear response to, to this point. But we do believe that the Quran says Jesus is a kalima, that he is kalimatullah, uh, the word of Allah, uh, kalimatul minhu, so a word from God. 
but it doesn't say the word, it says a word. And it's this idea that God says be and it is, that Jesus had a miraculous birth and his miraculous birth was not because he was begotten or something like that. We don't accuse God of having children out of wedlock. That's something called adultery. Um, but uh, we say that God directly intervened, directly spoke a word, and that showcased his power. So we we believe that he is a word of God who came into the earth due to Allah's direct uh, active will. And in a sense, that's what that's really what the look. But again, I mean, the, the conversation on the logos goes in this sense, it's about God's power, less so about logic and dialogue. Mm-hmm. But this point about logic and dialogue, I would recommend the book by um, Sayyid, uh, um, Sayyid Hussein Nasr. Sayyid Hussein Nasr has a book on the logos and he, he sees, and I mean, the traditionalists in general, a lot of the kind of new age traditionalists, they talk about this a lot. But um, the whole discussion on the aql, uh, on the Quran being the word of God, and whether that word of God is a part of God or whether that is a creation, the Mu'tazili and the Shi'i position. Um, like this is all relevant in the Islamic world. So we, we do have a Logos concept, but I mean, it would require an entire presentation to, to go into yeah, that. Of course, even the idea of the Haqiqat Muhammadiyah, which is again, a more mystical concept, more spiritual concept. But of course, many Muslims, some Muslims, they believe that, there is this Muhammadan truth, this Muhammadan light that is a, a fir- one of the first creations, and that light manifests itself in the good and truthful things in the world. Okay. Well, that's cool. Um, do you want to bring us back to the main screen again, by the way? Would that help? Or have you, oh, do you have more slides? Oh, there's but, no, I beg your pardon. Well, no. So this is, I mean, these are just some of the unique uh, contributions. So yeah. the Antichrist was, <clears> was one of the last ones that we highlighted. That's pretty much it. I mean, that's that's uh, that's my presentation. Um, oh, but yeah, praise be to Allah. So again, you can find the book, The Good Shepherd, Jesus Christ and Islam on Amazon. Yeah, You can follow my work on Facebook. That's really where I'm most active. Ah, that's good to know. I don't like Twitter, okay? I, I know that you're on Twitter. I know you have a lot of followers and I encourage those of you who like Twitter, follow Paul Williams and Bogdan Theology. Yeah, it, it, it's great for certain things like my no design posts because they get circulated easily and, you know, they're, they're good for some things. But I grant you it is a very thin kind of medium when it comes to serious ideas. By the way, I think we talked about this before, but I, I also have um, uh, Return of the God Hypothesis, uh, Stephen Meyer. I was so happy you interviewed him. Mm-hmm. That was tremendous. And you, you grilled him on the point about uh, Muslim science in, in history. Yeah, basically, which basically doesn't exist for him. It, it's straight in the deep end with giving the credit to Christianity, which I think is completely false to history. Uh, and historical. I, I, and I'm not sure he has revised his views since then, uh, and because um, he has spoken about this subsequently. Uh, I still think he's saying the same thing, unfortunately. But, um, yeah, what can we do? I think he's acknowledged the criticism, to be yeah. fair to him. I think he acknowledged yeah. the criticism, but uh, I, I think maybe he's doubled down on uh history of science having a uniquely christian origin and christian flavor exactly um but nonetheless i mean i I really enjoyed his book i actually reviewed his book on my youtube channel bidaz boulder but anyway um you can follow me on facebook i I can't do twitter okay Mm. twitter is just this this isn't like a competition between who can insult who with the shortest amount of characters no 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 no, twitter is what you make of it if you have good followers and you behave 
respectfully, then, you know, you can have a good time. You can exchange. It's also good for, uh, I, I found, for, for news, breaking news, because I, I, you can wait for hours before the BBC picks up on it and gives you its version. But if something happens somewhere in the world and it's worth knowing about, you'll hear it on Twitter first, like instantaneously, before the major networks hear about it. So there, there is that. Um, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. But, I mean, if, if that matters, then that's one thing. Um, it's also you could pick up some interesting bits and pieces, but yeah, there's a lot of rubbish on it as well. Like, yeah, maybe I just get attracted <clears> to the rubbish, <throat> I suppose. No, I'm not suggesting you should go on it. it, it it's um, an acquired taste, perhaps, as well. Very well said. Mm. So, yeah, of course, support this channel as well, uh, Blind Theology, for cool videos that are insightful. And um, uh, I mean, I love your videos with, uh, with, um, Dr. Ali Atai. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, he has some tremendous videos on the same subject, right? So he's an expert in this field and he does some tremendous work yeah. as well. And he's, a, he's an outstanding scholar and I'm so blessed that he comes on periodically. He's next due on at the end of the year, I think. Um, where he'd be looking at um, the way um, uh, the allegations of, of fables and, and recycled myths and so on, uh, they're allegedly found in the Quran. You get some Orientalist scholars saying this. Um, anyway, he's going to do a whole presentation on that, and they usually are several hours, um, which is great. <laughs> so, oh yeah, no, I mean, very unique research. He's a uh, he's multilingual, right? He's he speaks yes. biblical Greek and yes. Hebrew, Hebrew Aramaic. He's pretty good at English as well, and he's a Farsi speaker, um, Arabic, of course, Arabic as well, yeah. polymath. Uh, he's unusual to be able to read uh, New Testament Greek and biblical Hebrew as well as obviously the Quran in Arabic and Persia, Persian as well. So Farsi. Um, so he's uniquely qualified, has a PhD to go with that. So It's always good to have. Always very handy sometimes, <laughs> this is true. So yeah, yeah. I, I recommend folks get your copy of uh, that. It's a good read. Uh, lots of in, um, lots of interesting information and insights um, as, as well. So yeah. When is your book coming out on this subject? My book? Did I say I had a book coming out on this subject? <clears throat> um, I, mean, not, I don't know. Not, not to me, but I think uh, if anyone's qualified to write one, inshallah. No, no, I'm not qualified. <clears throat> no, no, that's precisely the point. I'm not qualified. I'm not a scholar. So I'm here to to talk to scholars uh, and uh, people like yourself, of course, um, to learn. I'm not here to teach or to anything like that. So I, I'm, that's above my pay grade. I appreciate your request for interview and your humility and uh we hope to see more and uh yeah and if anyone wants to connect find me on facebook well thank you bilal mohammed um for your uh valuable time um until next time take care say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill